All right. Well, we are in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to make it down to verse 26. We're going to get the whole chapter in today. And uh, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, we've observed that God had a blueprint, that he was a creator of this world, and that he wanted uh, mankind to have fellowship with him, and that there would be a marriage union. And in that marriage union, Adam and Eve would work together to fulfill God's uh, mission that he gave to them to be fruitful and multiply, but also to take care of the, the planet Earth, to till the ground. In chapter 3, we saw the rebellion against God's plan and how sin entered, entered the world, and that promise came that God would raise up a deliverer, a seed of the woman would come who would bruise, would uh, uh, crush the head of Satan in his hill, that seed's hill would be bruised, and we know that to be Jesus. So we move into chapter 4, we find some tension along that very line. One day, Eve was going to have a son, and then eventually we know that carries all the way out to Mary, a descendant, um, having Jesus. Of course, they have no sense of the timing and when it's going to take place, but as we read through the book of Genesis, we're, we're living with the hope that is found that the woman would have a seed that would be a deliverer. And so as you come into chapter 4, it feels like everything's lost. The whole hope of having a deliverer has been destroyed, and we'll follow that story and see. So that's why the title of this study is The Seed, capital S, The Seed Crisis. Let's begin reading at verses 1 through 8. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance, why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. A really tragic story of what's going on in the family, and there's something that's even more tragic about it, and that it's so early on in human history, and already we see this sibling rivalry that results in one brother taking the life of another brother, the murder, murdering God's new creation. It just doesn't read well, does it? it? It never reads well, but just especially here, it's like, why is this happening? Why is this going on? But what I want us to see from kind of a, a stepping back before we get into the details of this story is that they were coming before God to worship him, which means that God from the earliest days was requiring man to come and to worship, and man had the opportunity and the privilege to worship. It must be concluded that somewhere along the, the way, God told Adam and his sons to come and worship him in a prescribed manner. Now Cain comes and he offers a, an offering, right? that is of the fruit of the ground, 
And Abel comes as one who keeps uh, the, the sheep and livestock, and he offers a blood sacrifice. Something happens as they come before God, and Cain's offering is not accepted. It's rejected. The Lord does not find pleasure in it. So the question is, what's going on? What happened to that sacrifice that the Lord said, I, I don't want that? The, on the other hand, Abel comes, and it is accepted. Now, there's different ideas have given, are given for why, and ultimately we don't know. We can only speculate as to why that gift was not given. Some have said, I think it's a, a reasonable conversation, um, it wasn't accepted because he brought a, uh, a sacrifice that was not a blood sacrifice. And so if you come before God, you must bring a blood sacrifice. Well, that is true for sin offerings. This does not seem to be a sin offering, but whatever, they're coming to worship. But God does prescribe grain offerings under the Mosaic law. So God will have both blood sacrifices, but he will also have sacrifices that come from the field. So God evidently is willing to accept both of those sacrifices. So that does not seem to be... The problem, because you look at it and say, well, this is kind of unfair. I mean, poor Cain, I mean, he didn't take care of animals. He took care of the field, and he was just bringing what he had. I don't think that's the issue there. I don't think it's the, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, and therefore God saying, I won't accept it. Obviously, that is necessary for a sin offering. But what does, we, we get one little hint, I believe, in this passage as to what maybe was going on. And it's found there in the description of the gifts that were brought. We see that he brings a, uh, something from the, the, the fruit of the ground in verse 3. And then in verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. And so the, 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 there may be an indication here is that he was bringing the best that he had. He, was bringing the, he wasn't bringing the old and he wasn't bringing the lame. He wasn't bringing something that was left over. He was bringing the best that he had to bring. Now, ultimately, I cannot be dogmatic about that and say that was the problem in the offering. We just know that there was. God knew what it was, and Cain knew what it was. Cain knew that there was a promise of acceptance if he would come and bring it the way the Lord had called him to bring it. And that's what you see in verse 7. You can come, Cain. You can come, and I will accept you. You know this is true. If you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? And this is true for every man and every woman, that if we come in the manner to God and the way in which he's told us to come, then we'll be accepted by him. Cain knew how to come to God. Jesus certainly hit upon the principle of how to come to God for all of us. In Mark 12, 30, it says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. However you come, the first thing that God wants, the most important, is that we come with everything that we have. And there may be that indication that Cain was coming, holding back, unwilling to bring the best that he had. It wasn't the the first fruits. It was something else. And God's like, no, no, no. You can't bring this. It's like, well, we got to actually reject somebody for a purpose like that. The book of Malachi. You familiar with the story of the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament? They, and it's a rebuke to the priests. 
And the Lord says to the priest, you're bringing the lame and the sick and the old. You're bringing in these three-legged, one-eyed sheep and offering them up to me. I don't want that. Take that. Here's an experiment. You take that sacrifice and you go to your governor and you say, hey, I just want to honor you and here you go. And when he looks at that lame sacrifice, what is he going to think? He's going to say, I'm not, what kind of man do you think I am that you would bring something like that? You're making a statement about who I am by bringing that. And so the Lord says, don't bring those things to me. Bring the best you have to bring or come with your whole heart your whole soul, your whole mind, and offer that in worship to me and and you'll be accepted. David understood this as well. Remember when he had sinned and he was wanting to make an offering, he went and he saw the threshing floor of Arana, known as Mount Moriah, known as the Temple Mount. And he says, I want to buy this and I also want to buy the the oxen and the the yoke and all the implements that are with it because I want to Build a wood fire, and I want to offer a sacrifice of the oxen on this place. How much do you want? Arana says, you're giving this to the Lord? Giving it to the Lord. It's free. You don't have to pay anything for this. And David's response is, I will not offer anything to the Lord except for that which first costs me. I'm not bringing leftovers. I'm not going to bring something that is of no value to me. I'm going to bring something that is of a sacrifice And I'm going to bring that and I'm going to offer that to the Lord. So whatever exactly Cain did not do, we know that he missed this point. He was not coming in the way that God had prescribed and bringing the best that he had to bring. Otherwise, he would have been accepted. There's a promise of acceptance for Cain and there's a promise of acceptance for you and and for me as well. That if I will come in the way that the Lord has told me to come, I'll be accepted. Well, how has he told us to come? We don't know from Cain's situation, but we do know for our own, don't we? There's only one way to come to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ, his Son. Jesus was born, that seed of the woman, Mary, and he was given a human body. And you had had one who was fully God being fused together with man. And he is the, the one and only God-man. And he came and he took in his body a perfect sacrifice, the sin of the world upon himself. That sacrifice was accepted like Abel's, but even more so. Because this is the last sacrifice. So we may not know how to bring that sacrifice that is acceptable to God on our own. We can't do it on our own. But Jesus did it for us. Jesus has been the one that's gone before God. And he paid the price. He was that final sacrifice. He was accepted. He rose from the dead. And we know that if we will come through that sacrifice, we too will be accepted. And already in the early chapters of Genesis, we see the gospel picture being painted. We don't have all the color and we don't see all the, the, uh, you know, the, the depth of it, but we do see that picture being painted for us and that we can be accepted because God desires that man would find salvation. He didn't have to have this conversation with Cain, did he? He could have just said, listen, I'm tired of you bringing in sacrifices that are not good. Either get it right or I'm done with you. But, but he, he says, you know what to do. I'm, I'm willing to accept you. Just come in that manner. 
2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You are part of the all. If you're here this morning, and you're thinking, I know I've messed up with God too many times. I am certain that he is done with me, and I... If I even had a place, he wouldn't want me to be close to him. Nobody wants me to be close to them. Listen, God loves you. And God is calling you to himself. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of sin you've committed. God is willing to forgive you because Jesus has made the perfect sacrifice. And he's been accepted. Therefore, if you come through him, you too will be accepted. You ever wonder why God's waiting so long? This verse tells us, doesn't it? 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is waiting because he doesn't want anybody to perish. Now after we're in, we're good. Let's go. Let's, let's wrap it up. Rapture time. Let's move it on. But, I mean, but what if the Lord would have come back 10 years ago? Many of us in this room, maybe you wouldn't have been a part of that salvation story. So we're glad that God has had long suffering and patience and God is still waiting. And why does he wait? Because the price has been paid. The investment has been laid down. And and the Lord wants to receive as many into his kingdom as he possibly can as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus. But I love these verses and I've quoted them often here in the opening chapters and our opening studies as we've gone through Genesis. But Jesus himself says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a promise of acceptance from the Lord. If you will come, you will find God himself saying, Welcome, come. And he will bring peace into your life. There will be a sense of things being right. Now he does say my yoke is easy and my burden is light, meaning there is a yoke and there is a burden. So you don't get just to come however you want to. You don't get to come up with your own yoke of how you come. You don't get to come up with your own burden of how to live out the the Christian life. The Lord has laid it out for us, but it is an easy one. It fits perfectly. And the Lord is not trying to drive you into the ground at all. And so... Understand there's a promise of acceptance. He says it to Cain, and he's still saying it today. We move on at the end of verse 7. There is a warning, though, if he continues to live. He says, if you do well, you'll, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, well, sin's at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. He warns him there's a threat of sin. You're doing it your way. Now, if you do the right thing, you're going to be accepted. But if you don't do the right thing, that is going to become an even bigger threat in your life. That threat of sin is going to grow. And it's going to seek to overcome you. It's like a beast that's lying at your doorstep, your threshold of your home. And it's just waiting for you to come out. And when you come out, it's going to pounce upon you. And this is what, how Peter describes uh, Satan, right, as our adversary. The devil, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And that is what sin is like. Sin promises fullness. Sin promises 
pleasure. Sin promises it's all going to work out. Sin promises it's finally going to come together in a way that will bring fullness and completeness and joy in your life. But God says, no, sin is like something that wants to destroy you. Be, be aware, Cain, if you keep on living the way that you're living, that sin is going to overcome you and it's going to destroy you. And we're going to read that it does indeed destroy him and his life. As you look at your own life, as I look at my own life, we need to properly understand sin. Sin is not a friend. Oh, it's pleasurable for a season, but its end brings corruption. Its, its final payment is death, and we need to be aware of this. As sin is represented as a predator waiting to destroy and consume, but it offers itself as a savior. It offers itself as fulfillment. It offers itself as a thing that you've really been missing. And once you finally indulge and get into it, now you're going to be complete. No, you're not. You're going to be destroyed. Sin brings corruption. And we all know this to be true. We all have sinned in our life and we've borne the consequences of our actions. Whether it be in community or within family or before God, we have felt the consequences of not doing the right thing. And it never feels good. Nobody ever says, wow, I love the way this sin is wrecking every relationship around me. I love the way sin is destroying me. I love the way that sin has just become like this uh, bottom that's dropped out and I'm in a free fall now. And I don't know where ground... Nobody enjoys that. We all know of the consequence of sin when we do it our way and we end up paying the consequence. But we forget. And we're deceived again. Well, this time, sin is going to be great. This time, it's really going to come through. And it is a liar. And we need to know that it is a liar. So, the threat of sin. I don't know what that threat may be in your own life. Maybe it's materialism. You're thinking, man, I'm just going to take that credit card out for a ride one more time. And I'm just going to max it out. I'm going to get all that stuff. And then, then I'm done with that materialism. And then I'm done with that covetousness. And I'm, I'm not going to let it rule me. I'm not going to allow that desire for stuff to just drive me to do sinful things and, and just indulge myself like that. Or maybe it's a person. and Maybe it's an illicit relationship. You know it's not right, that relationship. It's not your spouse. And you're developing it. And you feel the emotions in your heart growing. You feel the attraction Oh, you try to deny it, but the thought comes in, and you begin to turn that thought over. Yeah, if he says that, then you know what? I think this time I'm going to say, or if she invites me, then I'm going. To, and you begin to play out this fantasy in your mind. Oh, you're saying, I would never do it, but you're playing it out in your mind. You're rehearsing unrighteousness in your mind. As a man thinks, so he is. Before you know it, that thing that you're rehearsing in your mind can quickly become the reality that you're living out and you will find that threat of sin that's at the door destroying you. Or maybe it's bitterness. And you're unwilling to let go and you're just thinking, I deserve to hate this person. After what they've done and what they've said and how they've failed me, I deserve the right to hate them and to have bitterness towards them. And it's lying at the door and it's inviting you in to rail against them in your mind and in your heart, and to begin to spread that, that bitterness around, it will destroy. It will destroy you, and it will destroy every good relationship you have. Isn't that the interesting thing about it? 
bitterness. Bitterness targets a relationship that has made you mad and you want to hurt and harm that person because of what they've done. And yet that bitterness does not stay there. It doesn't know the boundaries. Sin doesn't know boundaries. You can draw boundaries. Well, we're only going to go this far. I'm only going to do this. I'm only going to do that. And we think that we're going to be able to contain that sin. But sin is likened in Scripture to what? Leaven. And what does leaven do? Does it, does it work in only half of the lump? Does it, is it contained in only a portion of what it's inserted into? No, the entire dough is going to be affected. It's going to have that impact. It's going to cause it to, to rise. And that's what sin will do. It does not know its boundaries. And don't think for a second you can keep it in its boundaries. It's at the door. Be careful. Well, as we keep on reading there in verse 8, we have the record of the first murder. And it's between two brothers, which makes it all the sadder. And you might say, well, this is, this is the world's first religious war. It was over how they were worshiping that he became bitter. It's over that how he was being accepted. His way of coming, if you will, his way of coming as God had prescribed a religion versus the way Cain wanted to do it. It made him mad. And it caused bitterness and hatred to grow in his heart. Now he could have come and been accepted, but no, that wasn't enough. You know, it is something that's been sad that down through human history, there have been all kinds of oppressions and all kinds of wars that have been carried out because of the different ways people approach God. Don't misunderstand me. There's one way. There's one truth. There's only one way to get right with the Lord, and that today is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I'm not suggesting that there are many ways, but I'm just simply saying that down through the ages, people have chosen to fight against each other and oppress each other because they have come in different ways. There's only one way. But that is what we've seen in the history of, of the church. So often, holy wars were fought, trying to coerce and trying to make Certain groups of people worship God. And you cannot coerce a person to worship of their own free will. God wants us to come of our own free will and worship Him. Coercion does not accomplish that. But that has not stopped man from trying. And even within the church, Christian against Christian has fought against one another. You say that you, you know, communion is the body of Christ, literally, we're going to kill you. You say that the, I mean, there were wars that were fought over a view of communion. And Christians were killing Christians and coercing people. And how baptism, baptism as an infant or baptism as, as, a, as an adult, full immersion, I'll kill you for that. And there were wars that were fought. Even during the time of the Reformation, after the Reformation, these things were still going on. And they justified it by misunderstanding the Old Testament and the wars that God had called Israel to. And I know some of you are already there. You're already thinking, well, wait a minute. God sent the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites. Isn't that a holy war? Not in the sense I'm talking about it, it's not. Trying to coerce people. If you follow the history of the Canaanites, whom God said drive out of that land, God waited 400 years before he brought judgment upon those people. Not 20 years, 
Not 100 years, not 200, not 300. 400 years he waited to bring judgment upon them for their treachery and their murderous ways and their idolatrous ways and their perverted ways. And he gave them time to repent, 400. Can you imagine giving anybody 400 years to get it right? Could you imagine giving somebody four, somebody four days to get it right or four hours? I mean, we can really be impatient, but God waited 400 years. And then he brought Israel in to that land to judge them for their sin. Now, later in history, God used the Assyrians to judge Israel for the same sins. And then later in history, God used the Babylonians to judge Judah for their sin, those same sins. This is what we find in Scripture. God will use a nation to judge another people for their rebellious and sinful ways. So this is not simply a, a land grab. This isn't simply um, you know, a holy war in the sense of what happened in the Crusades. This is different. God is judging sin. God is a just judge, and he judges sin in different ways. And in the Old Testament, he judged the Canaanites for their sin and rebellion through the nation of Israel. So it is different. It's never right to go and oppress or coerce another group of people to become followers. God does not grow his kingdom that way. In Romans, we read that it's God's kindness that leads a man or a woman to repentance. His kindness. He wins and expands his kingdom through love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He doesn't do it through you know, a hard fist. Does he judge? Yes, he judges. He absolutely does. There's no mistake. He is a just judge. But that is not how he seeks to grow his kingdom. He grows it through love. So we see this here, this first religious war, but just understand that what Cain is doing is sin and what every religious war is sought to do and coerce people and oppress simply because they worship in a different way, albeit maybe even a wrong way. That is not how God has told us to go about our mission. It's to go and serve. It's to go and love. It's going to preach. It's to give our life, if need be, for that cause. Not to take life. So, verses 1 through 8, we see this, this, this murder that takes place. Now, verses 9 through 15, God is going to remove his blessing from uh, you know, Cain's work and his presence. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The sarcasm here is just dripping, isn't it? Am I, how, how am I supposed to know what's going on with my brother? I don't know. Do you know what's going on with him? He knew what was going on with him because he had killed him. He had, with his own hands, taken the life of his brother. And he says, how am I supposed to know what's going on with my brother? But in one sense, it is a question. Are you your brother's keeper? Yeah, you are. So, I mean, not only is it sarcastic, and he knows exactly what's going on with his brother, but we are to be our brother's keeper. If you want to read Philippians chapter 2, it says that we're to look out for the interest of others. We're to esteem the interests and the needs of others higher than our own. Even Jesus said in that parable that we should be the keeper of our, our brother who's in our, our enemy. They gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. Samaritans and Israelites were enemies. And Jesus said, this is what you need to do. If you see your neighbor in need, you need to take care of them. You need to love them. So 
Cain, are you your brother's keeper? Yes, you are. You are to look out for their well-being, and we are to look out for one another's. And the Lord responds in verse 10, says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Oh, suddenly he cares about life. And the Lord said to him, here's his grace and his mercy, his long-suffering. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, which we don't know what that mark was, but it was something notable, lest anyone find him should kill him. It was like, do not touch, kind of a, a sign that was put onto Cain. So he's removed from God's blessing and presence. He's going to have to work the ground, but the ground is no longer going to produce as fruitfulness the way he used, it used to come. He's going to have to work much harder. And now he's going to be a vagabond. He's going to be a fugitive. He's going to become a wanderer. He's going to be somebody that just roams about. So he knew the blessing of the Lord and the labor he went. He knew the blessing of having family and friends around. And he knew the blessing of being in the presence of God. Now all three of these things are going to be gone. But you know, in verse 9, he fails to repent. He gets cheeky as they, you know, lived in Australia. He got cheeky with God. And just was like, hey. I don't know what's going on with him. It's your problem. You're the one that made him. I don't know where he is. Do you know where he is? He wasn't broken. When, when his sin was brought before him in the most gentle way, he could have repented right there. He could have fallen to his knees and said, what have I done? I've sinned against my brother. I've sinned against my family. I've sinned against this, this created world, and I've taken his life. I've sinned against you, God. I've not valued the one that's been made in your image. I've taken that life. But he doesn't do that. He begins to, to push it off. He, he fails to take responsibility for what he's done. I mean, he learned from mom and dad, didn't he? It's the, you know, Adam, you sinned. It's the woman you gave me. Eve, you sinned. Well, it's a serpent that you made. And now we see that same kind of unwillingness to own responsibility for one's actions. Here's the good news. It doesn't matter what you've done today or leading up to today in this hour. If you will own what you've done and be broken and confess that sin before God and come to Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of all unrighteousness. Maybe it's murder that you've committed. Maybe you've taken somebody's life. Maybe it's, it's thievery. Maybe it's you've harmed somebody. Maybe I don't know what it is. The lying, the cheating, the stealing, the adultery. You can repent. You can become broken. Well, you know, I just don't, I feel like God doesn't care about that. I, I just don't feel broken about it. That's a, that's a terrible situation to be in. If you're at a place this morning where you're walking in sin, and you know it's sin, and you don't feel any regret for that, and you don't feel the disapproval of the Lord upon your life, that's a real problem. Because the Bible says, for whom God loves, He chastens. He corrects us when we're in sin. 
He lovingly comes and says, I cannot let you live like that. And we feel that discomfort. We feel that disruption. We lose that peace in our life. And we begin to feel the turmoil. Not only that, we begin to wander about like a vagabond. We, we lose our moorings. We lose a sense of belonging. And we're just adrift. And we're just we're like in a free fall, as I said earlier. It's what sin does. It promises stability. But it's the moment you step on it, the bottom opens up and you just begin to fall. It is interesting that he's called a, like a fugitive or a vagabond because Jesus said that when we accept him into our life, that he will come and he will make our hearts his home. And so we often hear people say, when I gave my life to the Lord, it's like I was coming home. It's like I felt belong, like I belonged to something again. That I was loved, that there was a place. And, and that, that is a beautiful description. But the more accurate description is, God made your heart his home. It's the same thing that we're expressing, but a place of belonging. Rather than being a vagabond, rather than being somebody that's just floating out there by yourself, alone. God's never intended that. You had to, maybe you've lost your family and the relationships because of what you've done. Maybe you haven't, but you've definitely missed that place of being before the face of the Lord. And he would welcome you back. An interesting thing is stated, I believe it's in verse 10. And it says, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What's that? You can't hide the slain. You can't hide the memory of those that have been killed and pushed aside. Now listen, in this lifetime, many times that happens. People can die and they're not even remembered. They, they, there's nobody to carry out the justice of their murder. The courts fail. People fail. It's just hidden. But know this, that before God, that blood cries out from the ground. You know, in, throughout the prophets... We repeatedly hear of God saying, I'm going to bring judgment for something that sounds just like this. Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7. If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, he wants justice, right? If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place and the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Now, if they don't do that, they're going to become vagabonds, right? They're going to be exiled. And there's this repeated theme we see from the earliest chapters and all the way through their history. When you sin, if you don't repent, then you're going to be exiled. There's this sense of wanderingness, wandering, aimlessness and emptiness. And if that's what you're feeling in your life, that's God being gracious and letting you know you need to come home. You need to come to him. But he promises to Israel, if you amend your ways, then you can stay in your land. But note what they did. They were oppressing the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and they were shedding innocent blood. And God remembers that. In uh, Revelation 6, verse 9, we read of the tribulation saints crying out from beneath the throne of God to be avenged for the martyrdoms that they have gone through. So this world may forget, but God never forgets. Justice may not be found in this lifetime, but nobody will escape the justice of God. And I can't help but to think 
on this, this moment. I could go in many different directions, but I can't help but to think of the millions of babies whose lives have been taken. Like how many? Well, since 1980, how about this number? 1.5 billion abortions worldwide. If the blood of one man was crying out to the God of heaven, what must it sound like to hear the chorus of one and a half billion babies whom Scripture says God created in His image in the womb of the mother? You see, we can, Christians, you know, some will say, well, yeah, we don't believe that life, or not maybe as Christians, but we don't believe that life starts until they're born. Yeah, but God says that he formed them in the, in the womb of their mother. It's the same word that is used when he says that he formed man from the dust of the earth, a potter's hands upon the clay, forming Adam, and Adam from the ground, but also those same hands forming a child in the womb of its mother. This is what scripture says. Said it to Jeremiah, 1.5. Year after year, the number one cause of death worldwide is abortion. Number one cause in 2018, 2019, already in 2020, 600,000 abortions have happened. 600,000. And so blood cries from the ground because of the way of the oppression that's going on. And God says that ground is not going to yield the way it used to. So there are consequences, whatever they may be, associated with that. They judge the nation of Israel because of the innocent blood that was shed. And so we must be aware of this. The consequences for Cain, in verses 11 through 16, he struggles to work the land. He's sent from the presence of the Lord, and he becomes a wanderer. A mark is placed on him so no harm will come. But you're like, well, wait a minute here. I'm the one who shed innocent blood. Maybe you've taken somebody's life. Maybe you've had an abortion. What does this mean for you? Well, if you will do right, you'll be accepted by the Lord. And there's only one, right, one way to be accepted. There's only one way to do the right thing. And that's to come through Jesus Christ. Now, if you are... A, a person that has had that or you advised somebody to have that and you've repented of that, I'm not bringing this up to bring any kind of you know, judgment on you or, or to bring up a, a pain upon you. If it's been forgiven, then walk in the grace of God and be free. Be free of it. Because the Lord has set you free if you've repented. But if you haven't, then repent of it. And come to the Lord. We close here in verses 17 through 24. We have two, two more quick points. We see Cain's descendants multiply on the earth. Now you should be feeling the tension in the story, right? Abel, the seed of the woman, has been killed. And now we're left with this guy named Cain. Doesn't sound hopeful that that's going to be the deliverer. And we keep on reading what comes from him. In verses 17 through 24, they multiply on the earth. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built a city. Oh, I thought they were supposed to be wanderers. So he's, he's rebelling he's still against the Lord. And he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujalah, and Mahujalah begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives, the first account of polygamy. 
The name of one was Adah, the name of the second was Zillah, and Adah bore Jabal. He was a father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Verse 23, then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy. So he's a first recorded polygamist. He's the second recorded uh, person to take a life in Scripture. And he just doesn't seem like a good guy. It's like, yeah, you know, he, he, was, you know, he messed with the wrong guy. It was an overreach um, and the way he retaliated. And so we see this, this destructive behavior in the line of Cain. But verses 25 and 26, another godly descendant is raised up. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and his name was Seth. For God has appointed another seed. So you can kind of you see what's been happening there. Another seed. We've been looking at the seeds of Abel, killed, Cain, bad news. But another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain killed, and as for Seth, and that is his name, to whom also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And here, look at this. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So we saw that Abel was one that was calling on the Lord, and then that was lost. And here they began to call upon the name of the Lord again. God raises another descendant. The grace of God. He could have just said, wow, these people. I mean, I made a perfect environment, and then they do the one thing I tell them not to do. And now they're killing each other. Let's just move on. But he doesn't. He's given a promise that a seed would come and that he would redeem. And that seed is Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary. He took on himself the sin of this world, and he presented himself to the Father as the Lamb of God. And that offering was accepted. And now we can come to the Father through him, and he will dwell in our hearts, and we will be made righteous through him. If you're here today and you've never come to the Lord, then come. There is no other way you can come to God except through Jesus Christ. His offering has been accepted. That's why he took on a human body, was to, put, to be punished in his body for our sin. Is it fair? No, it's not fair. But it's a gracious act of redemption. And we have the opportunity to be saved. If you don't know the Lord, we're going to give you a chance to come to him. If you're one who has sin crouching at the door and you've been playing around with it, then now's the time to do the right thing and to leave it behind. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would be gracious to us. And we know that you are. This is your commitment. You love to show mercy.